You think sports can be cruel? In horse racing, or more specifically horse breeding, there are former racers whose next jobs are as understudies for stallions. They don't actually breed, they just get the mares ready for their big moment. Yikes! But one teaser stallion may have the last laugh on some of his superstar contemporaries. We'll get into that, as well as the implications to betters regarding a change in the United States tax code. It's all straight ahead on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a hit-bobbing finish! This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. How many times have you seen this? Someone's overlooked in a particular performance, whether it's a game or a movie or a musical performance, and that overlooked person is the one who eventually becomes a bigger star than the headline performer. The late great baseball scout Mel Didier, whom I knew, talked about going to scout a player at Florida A&M University in Tallahassee in 1974. While he was there, Didier noticed a guy he hadn't necessarily come to see, an outfielder named Andre Dawson. Didier was impressed enough to convince his team at the time, the Montreal Expos, now the Washington Nationals, to select Dawson in the 11th round of the 1975 draft. Dawson became a Hall of Famer. There's an actor named Andrew McCarthy who starred in a 1987 movie called Less Than Zero. You've probably never heard of him, but there was an extra in the movie Less Than Zero that you may have heard of, Brad Pitt. He was credited as party-goer, preppy guy at fight. I'll go out on a limb and say he's done okay for himself. In the racing world... You may or may not realize this, but when horses do their thing in the breeding shed, you often hear that the stallion is usually the headline attraction, whether it's Tappet, American Pharaoh, Kitten's Joy, you get the idea. But there's not just one male involved in the mating process. Cruel as it sounds, there's another guy who's brought in to encounter the mare first. He's called the teaser stallion. He gets the mare in the mood, so that when the real stallion is brought in, the mare will basically be guaranteed to accept him and not fight him. But what of the poor teaser stallion? Well, draw your own conclusions. However, there is one teaser stallion who's had a heck of a success story. His name is Tiberius Caesar, and he's based at Arrêt du Logis, an operation in western France. For all of his dutiful work, Tiberius Caesar, who was once an $11,000 purchase, was allowed to breed to one mare, one whole mare, and the result is a son, Tiberian, who now has a chance to win the biggest race in Australia, the Melbourne Cup, which happens the Tuesday after the Breeders' Cup. What a story! Here to talk about Tiberius Caesar and Tiberian 
is his part owner, Julian Ince, who joins us here on In the Gate. Take us through why Tiberius Caesar was allowed to breed when he was really a teaser stallion. Well, because it was the first horse that we ever bred together, two friends, uh, myself and Heiko. And he was a horse we sold for a lot of money as a yearling. And we found him in the, you know, he, he won a Group 3. He was a Group 3 winner. He's a half-brother to two champions in Germany, one called Turf Konig, the other one called Trifosa. So he was a very well-bred horse anyway. He is a very well-bred horse, Tiberius Caesar. Obviously, about seven, at the age of seven or eight, we found him in the claiming circuits. After winning in Group 3, he then you know, went on like a lot of older horses, and we found him in a claiming race a long time, sort of when he was about the age of eight, I think he was, something like that. And we decided to claim him and give him a good home as we'd sold him very well. And we had all the family. We have all the family. All his family are here at the farm. So, as I say, we found him in a claiming race and we decided to claim him and give him a good retirement uh, and a good home and to be our teacher. Well, now, I would think that a lot of observers figure that male horses that are not as desirable as stallions become jumpers or pets or something like that. I would think the role of teaser stallion probably doesn't figure on many people's lists. How do you determine which horses get that job? And, and, and unless you own a stud farm, like I do. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why we decided with two friends, and then we decided, quite frankly, well, uh, my friend said, "We can't, you know, we can't just have him being teased. You want to let him have at least one mare a year." I said, "Well, if we're going to do that, we'll give him a good mare." And there's another mare that we bred together and we owned together with a, another friend of ours called Stefan Falk. The mare was called Tomasina, who is the mother, obviously, of Tiberian. Um, so that's what we did. So we had the father that we bred and we claimed and brought back to me the teaser and the mother that we bred together and raced. And she was a good filly. She was second enlisted. And we decided to give him a good shot with a, a good mother that we all bred together. How long can a horse be a teaser stallion before they get the idea that it's just not going to happen for them and they become disinterested? No, they don't. They, they're, they're always interested. It's like everything. When they're used to not covering, they don't get disinterested. They, they, they're always interested. Much like humans, I suppose. Julian Ince of Hooray du Logis in Western France joins us here on In the Gate. It may seem obvious, but just to confirm for us, how common is it in your experience that a teaser stallion sires any foal at all, much less a winner, much less a stakes winner? Well, true, but he is a very well-bred, as I said to you, he's a very well-bred horse. You know, he's a half-brother to two champions. He's a half-brother to Turkonic. He's a half-brother to Trifosa. There were two German champions. If you look at the pedigree, he's a very well-bred horse, and he was a Group 3 winner. So it's good, solid breeding lines it's it's not quite let's say all luck there's a good reason why it happened it doesn't normally happen but there is a good reason why it happened let's say well if his breeding was as good as you describe why was there no big commercial market for him well because i suppose everybody wants the let's say the speed they want the they want the speed blood um and obviously that's the opposite really to what's Tiberius Caesar has, other than the fact that we is by a, a speed stallion called Zetan, who was our first stallion we stood here at Logi. Well, that said, I mean, you say his breeding was good, but clearly there was not really a commercial market for him. No, he wasn't commercially desirable at all. No, not at all.
So that said, what were your expectations for Tiberian when he started out? Well, I mean, when he was a foal, I always remember my partners, Stefan and Heiko, they said, you know, what, what about the foal and what about the yearling as we went on, as we went through? And I, I did say to them, I said, well, look, you know, for me, he's our, he's our best-looking yearling. He is our best-looking yearling, yearling on the farm. Did you find yourself saying, how can this be possible? Am I really saying this? Well, I don't know if I've thought about it, but I said it anyway, for sure. And, and um, <laughs> it, 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 I, I suppose I convinced them so much that we, you know, convinced them to, to invest in a year's training fees before the horse actually ever run. So that was the good thing. A, a relief to me that while we're breeding horses together a long while as friends, when you say the first part of the teaser, you know, trying to convince them to actually put the horse in training and then pay training fees for a year before he even runs. Yes, I was. It was a great relief when we when we found out that actually he was a pretty good horse. Well, I would say he performed pretty well, as evidenced in a Group 2 race at Deauville. Travelling strongly is to Bechel with Olivier Pellier, his last run before he goes down under for the Melbourne Cup. To hard dream in front, but he has given to Bechel a lovely run into it, and now to Bechel moves up on the outside of Doha Dream. Travelling that into the clear at the 200 metres, 232.57. No excuses to Bechel. He's going home best into hard dream, who kicks and kicks harbour to Bechel's in front, and he just wins again. And he'll be a big chance down under. That was the Grand Prix of Deauville, run at just over a mile and a half on the turf. When Tiberian runs in the Melbourne Cup on November 7th, do you go into it thinking you have nothing really to lose because the horse wasn't really supposed to amount to anything, or do you go in expecting to win like you would with other stakes races? Well, I think, you know, if you ask any anybody that question, from my side, I always look at things in a positive light, and I would say, we're not going there to have a cup of coffee. We're going there to come back with a trophy. And I think we've got a great chance. What would it mean to you to win this race with this horse, given his background? I think what it would show, as a stallion man, we always try to, uh, always try to install into breeders that... Uh, there's always hope of something happening. You don't, you know, it's not all about the the jewels in the crown, stallions and the, and mares. That sometimes things can happen, and that's what we have to do on a daily basis as a stallion man. You know, I'm trying to help breeders, and we're telling breeders, you know, breed that mare to that stallion. So it, for me, as a stallion man, it's a fantastic. It would, it would be a fantastic thing for racing in the fact that you know you can install hope into every breeder and every owner. Well, we've seen it here in the states with a horse like California Chrome or even Seattle Slough, who were very modest purchase pricers, who weren't teaser stallions, but nonetheless came from modest beginnings to become champions. So we certainly wish you luck, Julian Ince. Thank you so much for a few minutes here on In the Gate, and the best of luck down under. Thank you very much. Look forward to speaking to you after the race. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, what the changes to the U.S. tax code mean to horse race bettors, plus how to attract younger gamblers to the sport, millennials, if you will. Don't go away. Welcome back to In the Gate. These days, just about any time you mention the word tax code publicly, you get more snippy comments than you would at a Kardashian family dinner. So it's hard to believe that a tax issue would be the vehicle to unify the horse racing industry. But that's what happened with the passage of a measure by the United States Treasury Department and the Internal Revenue Service. 
the measure will lower by quite a lot. It appears the number of winning paramutual tickets that qualify for withholding and reporting for tax purposes. Basically, betters who hit large exotic bets like a pick six usually wager a lot of money to have enough combinations of horses and races to include the winners. So these betters hardly ever bet one dollar on a pick four or a trifecta or other exotic bet. They bet larger sums, like a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, on different combinations of horses. Under the old rules, your tax calculation would be made on having bet one dollar on the single winning combination instead of the one hundred dollars or one thousand dollars or whatever your total bet was. Now your earnings for tax purposes will be your winnings minus how much your total bet was. So, if you win a thousand dollars and bet three hundred, your earnings will be seven hundred. In the past, they would be nine hundred ninety-nine dollars. The thousand dollars you won minus just the winning one-dollar bet. Obviously, that means there will be less tax paid by winning betters on exotic bets. And the way this news has shown up on social media and traditional media that cover horse racing—wait. Did I say traditional media? Pardon me. There's none of that that covers horse racing anymore. I mean, websites that report on racing have treated this news like the announcement of Osama bin Laden's death. Racing people can't agree on things like medication rules, when to disqualify a horse, program trainers, coordinating post times so there's no overlap between tracks, marketing the sport, etc. But boy, what a unified business this is! Now they're all saving money. Well, bully for you. What does this all mean? For that, we welcome back. Gosh, it's been way too long. Our good friend Ed DeRosa of the Brisnet Handicapping Service joins us once again here on In the Gate. So, Ed, what kind of impact do you see these new tax rules having on the industry here in America? I think it's going to be a huge impact, and、uh, even more special for racing. What's so rare about it is it's a positive impact for all facets of the game. This isn't a matter of one entity benefiting and another taking it on the chin. This is a rising tide lifting all boats. Starting with the betters,、uh, less paperwork and more money in their pockets is absolutely a good thing. And speaking to someone who sees what the effect of Having more money in their accounts and their bankroll does to handle. I have no doubt that this is going to increase handle across the board and across the industry, and that means more money for racetracks, more purses for horsemen, bigger betting pools.、Uh, to me, it's a, a huge win for any part of the industry that's touched by wagering. I know the technology for betting has advanced in recent years, in part due to Brisnet, of course. Cheap plug for you. But the idea of betting a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars on a pick four or other exotic bets is not a new concept at all. Why did it take so long to get federal regulators to realize that people bet large sums on these exotics? Well, I think if we knew the answer to that, we could probably solve a lot of other、uh, ills and issues that plague America. I don't think we have a chance of that. Yeah. <laughs> The the tax is unwieldy, and、uh, you know you have to pick apart the parts of it you want to improve. And racing was fortuitous enough to get in front of the right people to pick apart the part of the tax code that affected this part of the industry. But you know, for whatever reason,、um, well, I shouldn't say whatever reason. When it was written, 
the proliferation of exotic wagering had, had not occurred on any level. There was doubles, maybe an exact, uh, maybe a triple in New York. Uh, I forget how far back this goes, but nowhere near the exotic wagering we had now. And it made sense that, you know, if you, for whatever reason, managed to hit 300 to one in the wind pool or maybe caught, you know, a long shot double, it sort of made sense. That was a big jackpot in racing back then. Obviously, times have changed. And as you noted, we've moved way beyond, you know, $600 being a big score at the racetrack. So uh, it took a lot of education, a lot of lobbying. Uh, and it finally got done, but you know it, it took some time, as you noted. Realistically, Ed, how many of the bets that you see at Brisnet are large enough to merit IRS consideration? Uh, it's quite a few on a daily basis, and you know, sort of back to that question you asked before: is how many people are are betting? You know, two, three, four hundred dollar tickets. The issue wasn't really the total cost of the ticket; it was that they were basing. Uh, these IRS regulations on the base cost of the ticket. So when someone made a dollar Superfecta box, it was treated as a $1 bet, even though if they boxed five horses, that's a $120 ticket. Uh, before, the payoff was based on the dollar. Now they're going to base it off that 120 or whatever the cost of your ticket happens to be. And, uh, you know, with the proliferation of exotic wagering, it's significant amount. I don't know how many bets per day actually cross that $600, 300 to one threshold or the $5,000 threshold for automatic withholding. But we do know that exactas are right there with win betting is the most popular bet and tries and supers aren't far behind. So it's a big portion of the bets that are made could trigger uh, the IRS withholding. I, I don't know the number for sure how many actually do cross that threshold, but it's more and more every year as people gravitate toward the pick four supers, et cetera. Ed DeRosa of Brisnet joins us here on In the Gate. Recently in the Thoroughbred Daily News put out by our good friend Bill Finley, Dean Towers, who's been a board member of a group called the Horse Players Association of North America, wrote a series of articles about attracting younger gamblers, you know, the so-called millennials. He says that competition, not just from lotteries, but from legalized sports betting, which is likely on the horizon, as well as actually betting on people playing video games. Yes, that happens. It's called eSports. It's become a big competitor for horse racing, especially with the younger crowd. Are these apples and oranges comparisons or does mr towers have a point uh we certainly has a point that racing needs to a attract uh, this demographic and b do a better job at it uh no argument there i do wonder sort of the are people who are interested in esports going to be interested in horse racing that I'm not as sure about. Now, daily fantasy, I think, is much more an apples to apples with racing. You have a lot of stats. You have the opportunity to watch a live event and bet on it. To me, that is a lot closer to the racing experience than uh, the esports environment. But regardless, we know people like to gamble. It's, I mean, that's, you know, you talk about the oldest profession. Well, gambling is right there. <laughs> among the old vices in the history of the world. It's not going away. So 
to me, the biggest challenge for racing and as someone who tries to market information on racing and market the fun it is to gamble on it, you got to get people interested in, in the pure gamble of it. And we know people like watching a ball spin around a roulette wheel. We know they like watching sports. There's a lot of different types of people who are willing to gamble and racing needs to tap into that. And uh, that, that to me knows no age demographic bounds. That's across the board. Let people know it's fun to gamble on racing. Now, Mr. Tower says that innovation is the key to attracting young customers, and I suppose any customers, away from things like, you know, daily fantasy and betting on esports. By the way, I'm sorry, maybe I'm older than I thought, but I, too, have a hard time believing that people bet on people who play video games. So this is a lesson for me, too. I mean, what types of innovations do you think would help attract and keep any type of gamblers, but particularly younger gamblers? Uh, I definitely think the, the information needs to be more easily accessible. And, and I say that looking in the mirror, so to speak. Brisnet's certainly a part of that. And it's it's something I've tried to improve via social media, you know, get in touch with your customers that way, listen to what they want to know, what they're complaining about and adapt from there. But, when, you know, when you look at the daily fantasy environment, there's a wealth of information available at your fingertips and a very intuitive way that racing doesn't come close to. And when, you know, the, the millennial, so to speak, wants to give racing a try or dabbles in it because it's the Derby or Breeders' Cup, and they have the experience that racing offers after being used to what they can get on a college football game, that's a problem. And I definitely agree that innovation is needed in the information space. I still feel, though, that the most important thing is that get them in the door mentality and hooked on the gambling aspect of racing. But without a doubt, the availability of information needs to improve. Now, Mr. Towers pointed out at a conference at which he spoke that the demographics of racing fans are skewing older and older every year. Obviously, if there's not a younger generation coming in behind them, the sport will suffer greatly and potentially even die out, dare I say. How concerned are you about the demographics of your customers at Brisnet, and what do you try to do about that? The reality to me is racing is an expensive game, whether you're going to gamble on it, own horses. Uh, it takes more money than the average pursuit, and older people have more money. So to me, I'm I'm not as worried about that. I, I think people who are retired have the time to play on a Wednesday afternoon. Younger people don't. Uh, they're either in school, or they're working, or they have families. So to me, racing, just by the nature of when it's conducted and the price point to get in the door, so to speak, is going to skew older. And that's okay. I think this self-flagellation that racing goes through that, oh, we need more younger people, we need to be cool, we need to be hip. It's great to be talked about and, you know, be trendy, and certainly that helps bring some people in the door. But I definitely think racing needs to do a better job of keeping uh, the fans it has already cultivated and making sure that the attrition only comes from natural causes, so to speak, and not because you're driving away your 50 and 60-somethings that have the disposable income and the time to really be one of your, your better customers. So I'm, I'm the type that's not as worried about how many 20-somethings you're, you're attracting. To me, 
get the people who have the money and the time to put into racing. That's my number one priority. And therefore, you know, certain innovations to appeal to different demographics come into play, whether it's full HD signals for every track, fixed odds wagering. You just don't know which is going to appeal to which demographic and what's more important. And obviously, there's only a certain amount of money to try these things. So I guess it'll take people at higher pay grades than ours to figure out what to do about this. <laughs> well, I, I do think um, to that point, there is some opportunity with, you know, whether it's fixed odds or if sports betting uh, comes down the road. The legality of bookmaking could be attractive to some wagering operators in racing. And, and to me, I think bookmaking would blow up the derby even more I, I mean you know las vegas a couple of casinos do a winter book i think if you know churchill downs or pimlico in the case of the preakness some of these tracks were able to get together and offer exchanges on their biggest races to me that would be a, a marketing boom as well as a, a boom for business so there's definitely some opportunities i know some people are worried about sports wagering becoming legal and what that would mean for competition to racing. Hopefully racing embraces it because I think what that would open up on the betting front would actually be a big positive for racing. So it's something I'm optimistic about and hopefully others in the game are too. But I do think it's a problem that so few tracks try anything new. And when they do try something new, it's often a retread of what's worked elsewhere and racing is a very regional game. What works at one track isn't necessarily going to work at another. And yet, a lot of these innovations, or so-called innovations, are just reprisals of what's already happened at other tracks. So I, I do agree with the point that racing needs to try some things. And But it costs money, like you said. So maybe these tax improvements will pump more money into the racing economy. Well, I always like to leave our audience with a bit of a laugh, and the fact that you talked about tracks getting together to do anything is just hysterical, so I think that's a good note on which to leave it. Yeah, that's uh, unfortunately another issue. Ed DeRosa of Brisnet, thank you so much. It's been way too long. We have to get you back for the Breeders' Cup. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to this year at Del Mar, and uh, I'll be out there with our friend James Sully, so hopefully we'll be able to give some winners. Our thanks to Ed DeRosa and to Julian Ince. What is more important, stopping people who actually cheat or scuttling impropriety's appearance? The issue came up recently across the pond in England, where two owners were essentially given clearance when their trainer used an old race day practice to reduce muscle fatigue. He gave them a bicarbonate of soda. That raises the total carbon dioxide level in the blood, and most jurisdictions have an upper quota. But bicarbonate, or milkshaking, is just baking soda and water. There are no designer drugs involved at all. The practice is not harmful, except maybe diarrhea, and the horse recovers quicker in his stall. The problem's really optical. It gives off the appearance of drugging a horse, which officials ostensibly dread. So British authorities had to find those owners, but the amount was under a dollar. Even you could lay out that bread. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. 
And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In the Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.